If, like me, you love following racing all around the world, I've got something you need to check out. Right now, the fall racing calendar in Britain is reaching a crescendo with a flurry of Group 1 races, while the world's most prestigious turf yearling sales are about to get underway at Tattersall's next week. It's the perfect time of year to be exploring and getting involved in British racing. But where to start? Over this period, Great British Racing International is bringing you a showcase of the best of British racing and bloodstock, as told by leading figures from across the industry. On www.investinthebest.co.uk and across GBRI's social media platforms, you'll find stories of world-leading horses trained in Britain, of the country's foremost breeding operations, of the global footprint of horses sold at Britain's sale, and of the welfare standards that are upheld for the horse population in Britain, plus much more. You can find out about and contact Great British Racing International, who can assist you in taking your first steps into buying, owning, racing, and breeding in Britain. To find out more and to follow the stories, visit www.investinthebest.co.uk. Brought to you by our friends at Great British Racing International. At the moment... Your dollar gets you more than it ever has before in Great Britain. Check it out. Investinthebest.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the In The Money Players podcast. This is our show for Tuesday, September 27th. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital. Happy to bring you two great guests on today's show. We're going to start off talking with Dale Romans about his operation and everything going on in Kentucky. We're going to touch on some of his two-year-olds as well. And then a little bit later, Nick Tamaro will be here. We're going to look at a busy weekend of racing at Parks, their big day, a couple of grade ones there, as well as some big stakes races from around the country and potential Breeders' Cup implications that lie therein. Really appreciate you being with us here today. Busy time for In The Money Media, October and April. These are the two biggest months we've got, and we've got a lot of extra coverage for you too. If you want to sign up to our plus service, inthemoneypodcast.com slash plus for that. And I highly recommend that you do our free newsletter as the best way to keep track of all the content. And believe me, this week, it's so much extra and fun content. We've got our Santa Anita preview show happening later in the week. We've got a special show for Maryland Stakes Laden card on Saturday, as well as all the usual fantastic action, including lots of Breeders' Cup win and you're in action from around the globe, frankly. Uh, it's going to be great. And we're going to get to Dale Romans right after this. Today's show brought to you in part by our friends at the KTDF. That's the Kentucky Thoroughbred Development Fund. KTDF dollars in purses are only for Kentucky bred horses. So breeding in Kentucky is the best way to maximize profits and return on racing and breeding investments. Churchill Downs Racing and the Kentucky Racing Circuit as a whole continue to be on an incredible upward trajectory. You're going to hear more about the KTDF in our next segment. First up on the show today, very happy to welcome in a guest who needs no introduction. He is multiple grade one winning trainer, Dale Romans. Dale, how are things today? Things are good. It's a beautiful day in Kentucky. 
Well, <laughs> as so many of them are, looking forward to getting down there in a few weeks for a little bit of the, the Keeneland meet and, of course, the Breeders' Cup this year. Uh, what, what's your feeling on the Keeneland Breeders' Cups? Is it, is it uh, have a little bit of a special meeting when, it's, uh, when the big event is there? Yeah, it was fun. I mean, the one time we had it over there, it was a good time. I mean, my preference is Churchill Downs. I love it when it's over here at Churchill. But Keeneland puts on a good show. Everything they do is first class. Churchill Downs is one of the places I wanted to start talking with you about today, uh, specifically because this segment, as some have been over the last few weeks, sponsored by our friends over at the Kentucky Thoroughbred Development Fund. These KTDF dollars for the Kentucky bred horses Feels like we're getting to a point now where we've got more of a year-round racing circuit in Kentucky than we've ever had before. Curious to know how these extra purses have affected the way that you approach your your business, if they have. Well, I think it's helped business. People are wanting to race here. It's made it tougher to win races. You go look at the race that Churchill announced this last uh, September meet, and, and there, there's not better racing in the country. I mean, it equals Saratoga, Del Mar, or any place what's going. Big fields, good purses, good horses, top trainers, top jockeys. I mean, everybody's coming to Kentucky, and, you know, the purses are just going to get better with Churchill buying Ellis Park now. And, of course, a lot of it comes from the Kentucky Thoroughbred Development Fund. What do you like most about racing in Kentucky? Obviously, you've got a little bit more of a challenge, as you said, but obviously the good also outweighs the bad. Way outweighs the bad. There's no bad here. This is this is home for me. Everyone in the state knows about horses, loves horses. And you need to talk about it. There, there are more people in the metropolitan area of New York. There's twice as many than there are in the state of Kentucky. So, you know, in competition, we have to figure out different flows, revenue flows to get bigger purses. And when they put these uh, instant racing machines in a few of these places, they've just gone gangbusters. And, you know, it's only going to get better. Turfway just went online this month with their, they had a soft opening with their new parlor they have up there. And Churchill buying Ellis, they're going to break ground and put another parlor in uh, Owensboro, which is the third largest city now in, in Kentucky. I think that thing will go gangbusters and it's just going to get better and better, which, you know, now Churchill controls Turfway Park. Uh, Churchill Downs and Ellis Park. So you got 75% of the of the racing, not to mention Oak Grove, the quarter horse track they have down on the southern border that is generating purse money for thoroughbreds. And a lot of that money is is um, the way that works in the state, the KTDF that we're talking about, uh, a percentage of all handle goes straight into the KTDF fund, and, and part of that comes out of, the, out of the instant racing machine. So it's just going to grow and get better and better and better. Do you see yourself changing the way you train, keeping more horses in Kentucky year round? Yeah, I would say that will happen. I would say you need to take your, you know, grass horses or top horses prepping for a triple crown trail. If you have one of those, those will probably still need to go south just for the weather to get ready for the spring. But there's no reason to leave Kentucky anymore. You know, people don't understand how this thing works. The percentage of the handle is what goes into the purses. So it's kind of a set mathematical formula. And when you increase the handle as much as they have by using instant racing, because that's basically just like betting on a horse, the, 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 the percentages and the rules and the laws are all the same. It's just grown and grown and grown. And before you would go meet to meet or racetrack to racetrack and negotiate a deal, I think now we're going to start, I think Kentucky's going to start looking at 
a bigger picture and a year-round per structure. You're never going to have Turfway and Ellis at the level of Churchill and Keeneland, but they're going to be close enough where it's going to make you want to stay here. The one negative we always had in Kentucky is if you had good enough horses to compete at Churchill and Keeneland, they were too good to run at Ellis Park and Turfway. So you had to find a way out and something to do with them during those periods. Well, that's gone now, and it looks like it's just going to get stronger. I would imagine that could be a good selling point to your Kentucky-based owners as well, right? Yeah, there it is. It is. But and there's a lot of owners from outside Kentucky that are coming in to race here just because it's uh, one of the few places that's on a on a big uptick and a positive role. You know, there aren't that there, there, you would think there would be a whole lot more people living in Kentucky that own horses, but there's there's really not as many as you think. That's interesting. I wonder, though, with the year-round calendar and some of the factors you're talking about, if that could change. Yeah, I think so. I think you could get more people involved, and now it makes it makes sense. You know, it's the sport of kings. Now I always say it's the sport of syndicates and and people getting together buying horses, and and it makes sense because you can you can definitely pay your bills with the purses that they've got today, and then end up showing a profit. It was always a game. I would tell people never invest, never use your investment money, use your fund money. But uh, it's getting to the point now where that may shift. I mean, the purses are so good that you could really make money racing horses. That's interesting. I think of you as a very old school guy. What do you think about that shift from individual owners who are doing it to see their silks in the winter circle as opposed to now what we see where even very well-heeled ownership groups are banding together trying to win racing's biggest prizes? How do you feel about that shift? Well, I don't know about the the bigger guys getting together. That's just buying yearlings, trying to make stallions. That's a little bit different. But you know, you got the West Points and Team Ballers of the world that I've I've trained for all of them, and I love training for them. I think that you're what you're doing is you're bringing exposing more people to the game, you're bringing more people in, and a lot of great owners have spun off from these syndicate groups. I've got a guy over there with me right now, Dan Murphy, that's a part of West Point, decided to get some on his own, which didn't have a an entry level into the game, didn't understand how to get in, and these syndicates are going out, Eclipse, I mean, all of them, they're going out and marketing the game to people who didn't know how to get here, and it's, it's all a, a group of like-minded people that are having fun, and I have found a very, uh, a very good atmosphere around these syndicates. I want to ask you about a few specific horses of yours who've caught my eye talking about some two-year-olds. One that I wanted to mention is called Deer District by a sire Oscar performance I'm very, very interested in. What can you tell me about the latest from Deer District? I think he was uh, last seen at uh, at Kentucky Downs going very close. He got beat a neck over there in the half-million-dollar race. And I was real pleased with him. You know, I didn't know much about Oscar performance being a stallion, how he would be, but but he's the son of Kids Joy, which is is uh, near and dear to my heart. Who you trained? And uh, who I trained, and and he was a you know he ran the fastest mile in history uh, when he was racing. So there's no reason he couldn't be a good sire. So I took a flyer on this horse, paid quite a bit of money for him being Boston for I think I paid 140 thousand for him as a yearling, but it's paying off, and I think he's a top prospect. I think we'll run him in the Bourbon opening day at Keeneland. And if he runs big there, we try to get him back in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf. He's a really good horse. I also wanted to ask you about Cyclone Mischief. This uh, son of Inta Mischief, who also cost quite a bit at the sale, um, looked very good on debut, maybe got a little bit tired late, hard to go the mile first time out. But how did uh, Cyclone Mischief come back from that race? He came back great. He actually worked this morning, went 47 and a couple. I was real pleased with him. And we got high hopes for him, too. I mean, we'll go over to King, try to break his maiden. Hopefully he breaks his 
next start, we can take him to something like the Jockey Club or Remsen and put him on the Derby Trail. He'd be one that needs to go south. I was talking to you before about the way training has changed over the years. These days, horses seem to be making you know many fewer starts than they did back in the day. Um, how do you adjust, again, as somebody who I, th- I think of anyway, with old school methods, and, and you see nowadays these horses, they're almost you know wrapped in, in cotton wool between their starts. How has your training changed over the years, and, and why do you think the way horses are trained these days is so different than it once was? That's a good question. You know, it has changed a lot. It used to be when my dad was trained horse when I was a kid, we ran them every seven days. Of course, those were less expensive horses. But if you can go back and look at it, there's a great book out, Champions. Anybody who likes horse racing should order it online. and show you that all, all. It's a great book, and they show you the, the race record of all these old champions. And you can go back and look, and there, they would run on Tuesday and back on Saturday. East or Cielo, uh, won the Met Mile on Monday and came back on Saturday and went a mile and a half. He went against older horses on Monday going a mile and came back on Saturday and went to Belmont going a mile and a half. And, you know, that wasn't even that long ago. And things have really changed. Uh, I, I looked at personal incident. I talked to Sugar about it one day, about the difference. He would run, ran her back in 10 days when she was running. And it, that seems like yesterday, 1988 to me. But <laughs> it has changed. And I don't really understand why. I don't, you know, races, schedules have changed. But I think with much inexpensive horses and claimers, I keep running them. I try to run them as often as possible. Do you think they're faster today? They take more time to recover? Is there any truth to that theory? I'm just trying to get my head around how it's so different now. I don't think the fastest horses have changed a whole lot. I think there are more fast horses than there used to be. You know, we go through and look at some of the old wind pitchers of my fathers in the 60s and 70s, and they're running three quarters and 14 and 15 where, you know, that was common for cheap horses. The, the, the top of the line was still running, you know, 109s, 108s and changes. But the, the the masses at the bottom were much, much slower. And they're all running a lot faster now for, you know, I don't know what it is, but it's breeding. Or, but th- there is a major change. No doubt about it. And even you, uh, you you've, you've adjusted and you do things differently now, right? Giving more time between, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, so you do. And, and I don't know if it's the right or wrong thing to do. I know you get slaughtered by the papers if you do it and lose. And if you do it and win, you know, nobody cares. But, <laughs> uh, you have to change and adjust with everything. But I think horses could run more and train less. They can get hurt just as much training. How has your training changed over the years? How, that, that, how has that piece of the puzzle moved around? Well, that, that part hadn't changed a lot for me. I've changed basically the same. All like little things change, like feed programs when you get better food feeds, and and I can afford better hay and stuff today. But uh, you know, basically the same thing. I train the same way as I always did, which is a little different. You know, Alan Jerkins pulled me up one day. He was a good friend. He said, "Never change what you're doing. It works for you, and never try to adjust to the to the outside interferences." And and I've stuck to that. I'll do what I do. He said, you're a little bit unorthodox. He said, he was always considered unorthodox. He said, but do what feels right for you. And I've kind of stuck to that philosophy. What do you think is unorthodox about your program? What would somebody else come in and see and be like, wow, he does it that way? <laughs> you know, I, I really don't know because I don't know what the other people do. I mean, he was the only person to tell me that. So <laughs> I, I really am. But see, I, I work for basically three people in my life, my father and in a short stint with Woody Stevens and Stanley Huff. And uh, I try to, you know, maybe I train a little harder than some of the guys do today, 
that might be a little more unorthodox. You know, every horse goes to the racetrack almost every day. We don't give them walk days. We don't have a barn walk day like a lot of places I see. And uh, do things just a little bit different. Maybe run them a little more than a lot of people have, do these days, but it works for me. Exactly, exactly. Not a bad triumvirate of, of people to have come up under in that list, that's for sure. Lots of good two-year-old racing happening in Kentucky before the year's out. Do you have any unraced two-year-olds you're particularly excited about? Yeah, we got a couple. We got a Medallion year old Colt. I don't even think he's named yet. It looks like he's pretty nice. We got a, a Nyquist Colt I really like. There's a bunch of them over in the barn that are going to start popping uh, here in the fall. You know, I've kind of backed off, changed a little bit this year with not having them ready as early as I usually did. I had them a little bit ready later and more pointed towards the three-year-old careers. That's interesting because that's a trend I think we saw this summer nationally as well with many, many more two-year-olds coming out late in meets like Del Mar and Saratoga, especially Saratoga, than in the early part of the meet. Why is that, do you think, from your point of view, and why do you think we're seeing it as a national trend? Well, the, you know, the biggest year for a horse is always a three-year-old year. So you don't want to waste them on their two-year-old year. I don't know. We just try, We just took a little different approach this year. If that means we'll stay that way, that's another thing that could change later. But uh, I think, you know, it's getting on the three-year-old pro. A horse like Cyclone Mischief, you know, I really do believe he could be on the derby trail. And uh, I didn't want to use him up as a two-year-old, so we got him started a little bit later. And hopefully he'll go on and do what we want him to do or expected him to do. All right, so I have my notes here. We've got a Medallia Doro and a Nyquist in particular we're, we're looking for. Do you think they'll be debuting at, at Churchill, or, or do you have other plans? Uh, probably Churchill in November. Okay. And, uh, you know, they'll be ready to run in and go south, and hopefully they can get it. I think that things have changed around the Derby, too. A lot of the old, old rules that you needed to stick by to have a Derby horse, you you know, you can even start start them at three and win the Derby these days, and that that used to be unheard of. I've but got, some of that stuff has all changed. It's it's a different it's a different deal. The point system certainly has to have a big effect on that, right? I, yeah, it probably does. The point system does, and uh, you know, the, the two year old racing isn't as important on the point system. I didn't read about it. You could tell me what did they they change the the, the points on the Breeders' Cup? Yeah, I have. I would have to look it up for fear of of giving it to you wrong. But I know they've rejiggered the system. It really feels like things are more geared than ever towards rewarding horses who are getting sharp in the spring of their three year old year. Those those races obviously going longer as we get closer to the Derby. It really feels like they they if you do well in one of those, they want you to be able to to punch your ticket as opposed to having done so beforehand. And I would think from a trainer's point of view that that very much changes the way you need to treat the horses. It does. You know, the last round of those hundred point races, uh, those are really the determining factor most of the time. And uh you know it's changed everything about the Derby and maybe that's the reason that the favorites started winning all of a sudden for the longest time the favorites weren't winning but i think we've changed the pace scenarios on it with with taking away those sprinters that could gather up great stakes money before and and two-year-olds that come back and run one time or something jump into the derby because they they had a good two-year-old form it did change all that but i i I should have read the article closer and seen what they were talking about with the breeders cup i do believe you're a champion two-year-old you win the breeders cup you should get a little extra extra consideration it makes sense i mean just from a logical point of view while i get the idea of rewarding those horses from the final 
prep races. It, it uh, the, the, sh- surely there's a balance there, but it's something they they're constantly looking at. And and I'll look up the specifics and I'll drop the the info later in the show. I have a very down the rabbit hole question for you about training horses since we've been going on in that uh, in that direction, and it has to do with with your partner Tammy, who's also one of your uh, top exercise riders. Who she's on the smaller side. Um, does it change the way you evaluate a horse's work depending on the weight of the exercise rider, especially when horses are are working in in company? Does that factor into it at all, or or in well, the mornings is it just different than the afternoons where weight isn't really a factor? I don't think it's near as big a factor. It may be healthier on the horse to have the lighter riders. I try to have lighter. But uh, I've had Tammy doing it for so long. What would it be like to have a big, heavy rider working one of my better horses? But, no, I mean, they probably go a little faster with her. But, like, if you're working them in company, you're not trying to beat one another. You want about 80% exertion, and that's all you want. And I don't even tell – I never tell my riders how fast to go. I'll tell them I want, if I want a stiff work or just a medium work or if I want a really slow work, depending on the horse. And then they got to figure it out from there, and it'll be how, much, how many pounds of pressure it takes for them to slow them down. Right. Or just to let them run, but we never—you'll never see riders hitting a horse with mine when it's working or, or driving to get to the bottom of it. I think fatigue causes injuries, and when we're training, we want them to keep them at the works at, at maximum eighty percent exertion. I love the way your horses work, and and maybe that factors into it because they seem to be working well within themselves. But yet you still produce extremely competitive times. I guess that's just you know a function of uh, of the athletes themselves. Yes, that's what it is. Great stuff. Well, Dale, really appreciate you taking time out of a busy morning at a busy time of year and coming on here with us. I hope we can have you back on these airwaves soon to talk a little more horse racing, and maybe I'll even throw in a wrestling question next time. Uh, anytime we gotta get back to the wrestling matches me and you and john <laughs> that would be fantastic great stuff dale godspeed all right but fixed odds betting powered by betmakers is back and in effect at monmouth park and the early returns are fantastic 70 percent of winners paying more on fixed odds than they are on the tote fixed odds wagering now available throughout the state this is an exciting new way to bet that really puts the power to get value in your hands because the odds you bet are the odds you get. You're going to be hearing a lot more about fixed odds betting opportunities across the In The Money Media Network. Today's show also brought to you by our friends at Woodbine. Join us at Woodbine Sunday, October 2nd for the final leg of the Canadian Triple Crown, the $400,000 Breeders' Stakes at one and a half miles on the turf. This one for Canadian-bred three-year-olds. Also, Saturday, October 1st is the Duchess Stakes for three-year-old fillies. Lots of good stuff to be paying attention to. For more information, go to woodbine.com. We'll have coverage later in the week on the In The Money Media Network. Next up on the show, very happy to welcome in our man we turn to when it comes to recapping horse racing from uh, coast to coast and sometimes up into Canada as well. From InTheMoneyPodcast.com, he is Nick Tamaro. Nick, how was your weekend? It was great, Pete. Good weekend, uh, all in all. Nothing to complain about, and glad to uh, glad that my own wagering is trending in the right direction. We'll see how long that lasts for. <laughs> Any particular highlights over the weekend, or, or just uh, some positive uh, stuff along the way? Well, I got back in the groove on the Naira contest, and I actually finished first and second. Oh my God! I did not see that. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So uh, first and second, I was in contention. Uh, took the lead about mid-card. There was a Linda Rice first off the claim from Steve Asmussen that 
had had a very, very positive workout report. And so I played a double into that horse and took the lead on one entry. The other one was lingering around the top five to six, but took a hit when it was alive to a runner in the ninth and then got it back to third by betting the exacta in the Ashley T. Cole. And so I thought, well, what the hell? I mean, I might as well try and run one, two and hit the exacta in the last for 30 bucks, had a few bucks on the try. And so the one that was in third went to first and there I was first and second. That's fantastic. Great, great result. And it's all cash in those Naira contests, right? This is not a, a seat situation. No, all cash. So it's all, uh, and they actually seated it a little bit more than normal because the, uh, they pay the top 10, which, you know, in, in a, in a contest that size is, I'm not going to say anything, but if they want to continue to do that, they can do it. I guess it's to get more people interested, but, um, yeah, they're, they're sort of giving money away. And if you can, if you can play those Naira bets contests, they're, they're well worth it. It's a great opportunity, and yeah, the seeding is terrific. I, I, I would love to have when they, you know, they send us over ad copy and whatnot. We we should be pumping that up more. I mean, that's a huge thing. So, what? How many did did Saturday's contest get, and what were the prizes for first and second? You know, there were thirty six entries, and uh, first was thirteen hundred, and second is like seven fifty. That's great. That's really yeah. good. But yeah, we should yeah. be get. They should be getting more for that, and. Gosh, I mean, one one of these days we'll, we'll hopefully connect them as a tour too. If there was a tour associated with this, I think you'd be doing pretty well. I think it's safe to say. I've had a decent run, you know, a little few highlights here and there. I found a way to lose plenty of times too. I always lose the big money ones. Tony Joe and I text periodically about it because he and I play every week, and and he's like, "Oh my god, you're doing so good!" And I basically told him, "Like, yeah, I'm the king of meaningless low level contests." <laughs> I saw Tony when I was up in uh, in in Toronto. It was great to reconnect with him. Such a such a nice dude, and obviously incredibly sharp guy. And it's so fun, also, always talking to somebody who comes at it from such a different angle with all the quant stuff that that he does. Little World Horse Player Tour reunion there on the Naira contest uh, leaderboard. It sounds like anyway. Get involved in these Naira contests. They're every Saturday. They're a partner. Um, if you go to their website, naira.com. You can you can navigate over towards it, and yeah, we should probably start including like a URL in our ad, and definitely when they're seeding it, we should be pumping that up. That's very very cool. Let's do some recapping, my friend, and we'll start um, not at Aqueduct or Belmont at Aqueduct, as the case may be. Let's talk about parks for a minute, um, and and let's just start with the uh, we'll start with the, the the marquee performance, at least in speed figure terms with uh, Taba making his return to the races and, and making it a winning one. And this figure came back big. I mean, I think I was, everybody was ready to say, you know, Epicenter is going to be the, the three-year-old champion. And on figure terms, still that 112 obviously looks great. We know what he accomplished throughout the Triple Crown Trail. But if you just look at grade one victories, there's a, he's outscored right now by Taba, whose speed figure, no slouch whatsoever in the Pennsylvania Derby. It came back 108 on the buyer speed figure scale and looks even better through the lens of time form us where it came back a 131. How good is Taba? You know, he's good. And it, it's, it, this was one of those performances where you always felt like he was traveling very well, especially once he got outside. And, you know, I think in looking back at, at the Haskell, we all realized that Taba was likely best in there 
kind of realized it on the day. And then I think with each passing replay, Cyberknife had had such a good trip. He got such a great run through. He's, you know, obviously a talented and, and quite athletic horse that is willing to go into some tighter spots. And I think that helped with him coming up the rail, but Tabor really did the the heavy lifting going around the outside and, and whatnot. So, you know, you kind of felt early on in this race, like once Mike Smith got him outside, he would travel with so much more comfort and and once he did, I mean, he was just it was it was obviously it wasn't essential, but it was helpful to be forwardly placed on this track. And I think that, you know, that certainly didn't hurt Taba. I don't want to attribute his victory to anything bias related. He was much, much the best on the day. And, you know, what it goes to show is is obviously Bob Baffert has had a tremendous amount of success with horses that have had kind of backloaded campaigns. Um, you're thinking about, you know, Arrogate, West Coast, other three-year-olds through time that have kind of come up mid-season and done well towards the back half of the season. And they're just a little bit more lightly raced. And I guess the best thing they did with Taba was give him time off after the Kentucky Derby and let him have the opportunity to mature and develop, which he clearly has. You know, with his profile on the dam side, I would have never thought he'd be this good a router. But uh, but he is clearly a router. He is clearly a horse that wants every bit of the nine to ten furlongs. And, you know, in a, in a way, I think he poses just because you don't really know exactly what how good this horse might be. He's in the hands of of, uh, of a guy like Bob Baffert. You almost feel in a way like if Flightline is to get beaten, maybe it's because he gets pushed a little bit on the front end by life is good. They go a little quickly, you know, and here comes this little chestnut rocket around the outside that um, that starts picking them all up and and I think that's the that's the scenario that most of us can envision that I can at least envision that could be problematic as far as the classic goes I don't think it's a reach to say that Taba is a classic contender whatsoever and uh, and anybody who kind of dismisses him is uh, I think shortchanging him a little one thing that really stands out to me looking at Taba and looking back at these last couple of races is the fact that he missed that little bit of training before the Monmouth race. And the theory had been put out there by JK and others that he was actually kind of a short horse that day. And then you combine that he was a short horse with the time he spent inside. Not that the inside was bad uh, on on the day, but that he does seem like a horse that wants to be outside in the clear. And it does feel like Mike Smith learned something about him. But, but much more than anything to do with the trips on Haskell Day, I feel like the key factor may have been that idea that he was a little bit short of fitness and then clearly came into this a, a different, more fully realized horse. And I take your point that if you continue to project improvement for this three-year-old and you, you know, you, when you look at Flightline, obviously Flightline run, runs his race, it's, it's all over. But the, any scenario having to do with Flightline getting beat has to do with him backing up a little bit. I mean, if I squint, I can see it. Now, my more complicated question about Taba is let's pretend there's a Breeders' Cup Classic where Flightline does Flightline things and, and, and wins, but then in behind him, Taba, let, I don't even know what positions, but let's just say Taba finishes ahead of Epicenter. At that point, can you make a case for Taba with his two grade ones and then evening out the head-to-head score with Epicenter? Can you make a case for him being the three-year-old champion? As I say it out loud, I don't like the idea. I kind of want to give it to Epicenter based on what he accomplished in the Triple Crown races, even though he didn't win one. But 
I mean, some of the stuff that voters look at performance in the Breeders' Cup Classic grade one wins. There's got to at least be a case to be made for Taba, isn't there? Yeah, there's a case to be made. Um, You know, I I guess maybe like a, you know, flight line, handy win, Taba, good battling second epicenter, sort of nowhere fifth or sixth. Uh, I don't love it. I mean, it's, there's a case to be made, no doubt about it. I also, I think that Epicenter is being punished because of this whole grade one conversation. And it's, it's, I think that the, what we should all do and what the graded stakes committee should do is downgrade all the Kentucky Derby preps because there shouldn't be some that are grade ones and some that aren't. And what's to say that the Santa Anita Derby was a grade one, but the Louisiana Derby wasn't. Right. And so that's the that's the challenge here. And then, I mean, as far as who was available at the time, why was the Jim Dandy a grade two? But the Haskell was a grade one. Right. Right. I mean, so, you know, Epicenter has won, what, five five stakes, five graded stakes races this year, I guess was the he won. Did he win the LeCompte Risen Star? My memory is usually better than this. I'm assuming he won the LeCompte, (laughs) the Risen Star. And the, no, he lost the Lacombe to that ridiculous Keith DeZormo horse that was a million right. to one. But he won the Risen Star. He won the Louisiana Derby. He finished very well in both the, the Derby and Preakness, finishing second in both. Won the Jim Dandy. So, I mean, that's four four graded stakes, including the Travers, two seconds in the in the uh, in the Triple Crown races. I mean, boy, it's it's going to take. Taba has to win the classic to beat Epicenter. I think that's probably right. And I mean, yeah. if he wins it, if Taba wins the classic, you got to give it to him. But I think that 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 probably is what it's going to take. And some of this comes down to the idea. I mean, I love what you're saying. It, in a way, a race like the Santa Anita Derby, where you necessarily, because of the regional nature of these preps, don't have the best running against the best. I totally get the point. It should not be a grade one. I feel like the way the industry works it'll be very, very hard to ever downgrade it. It's more to me like there are certain races that are grade one pluses. And obviously the Triple Crown races, I think, fall into that uh, fall into that category. A race like the Travers for me, and maybe I'm being a New York homer here, falls into that, falls into that category. I'll even allow, I'll even allow the Haskell to have it, though again, it's it's tough because it is you know, half the Half the horses that you want to see in it are typically running in the in the Jim Dandy. It's it gets very complicated. But when you really look at the body of work, and you, especially when you're looking at the difference between Grade One and Grade Two in these Triple Crown preps, I, I think you make a very compelling case for what's going to need to happen. But in any case, it's good to have Taba back. It's it's an interesting you know regardless of how one feels about the trainer this is a very very talented horse who's uh, who's who's a serious contender and going to be an interesting story to follow we can't move on from the Pennsylvania Derby without talking about a few others of these you and i had both been really looking for the cutback for zandon he ran a really really nice race and he was doing his best work late um to, to the eye and and really to the clock as well are you turned around about zandon is this a horse that you still want to see cut back or do you think there will be longer targets in his future after this oh 110 this horse is crying for a cutback i mean he's yeah. he has the perfect cutback profile he makes one run he is obviously talented. He can get himself into position. You know, now he's pretty consistently earned hundred plus buyers Pete figures. Um, I, I will. I am so bullish on this horse cutting back, Pete. I'm not certain I wouldn't run him in the Breeders' Cup Sprint. I mean, just to just to get him somewhere where he can run around one turn. I would imagine they'll probably opt for a race like the Cigar Mile 
um, because it would give them an opportunity to to get him uh, a, a grade one late in the season. He obviously won a grade one earlier in the season, winning the the bluegrass. But um, yeah, I, I would get him. I would get him cut back ASAP. What will his Breeders' Cup race be? Do you think? I mean, the Dirt Mile, I guess, would be the the Occam's Razor, um, you know, most obvious solution for that. Yeah, I would say that seems to make the most sense. I think he's worthy of a start in there, and you know, could be a little tricky for Chad Brown, possibly running Jack Christopher in there too. And you know, it. I, I think the, I think that he'd probably run the two against each other. I don't know why there would be any hesitation there, but there's obviously both an opportunity. There's still a little conversation about Jack Christopher running in the sprint, I would imagine. Right. One of them could go in the sprint, and I think they'd both be a little bit interesting based on on, on what you're saying. Now, it'd be unusual to see a mile in an 8th Pennsylvania Derby cut back to the sprint, but I, I take your point that with his horse's running style and the abundant speed we expect to see in there, I think he'd be moving well late, let's put it that way, whether or not he'd be able to, to get all the way there or not, uh, a question open for debate. But we'll see We'll see what happens with him going forward. And then what of Cyberknife? I, I thought visually, I mean, this horse was trying. If there was a horse that looked like maybe he was against the profile of, a, of the track, I think you could put Cyberknife in that category. I mean, obviously well, well beaten in terms of lengths. I'm not quite... I'm not quite ready to give up on him, but I do think, you know, we've seen enough of his body of work that we pretty much know what he is at this point. Extremely consistent last three races, by the way, on the time form scale, 123, 124, 123. Uh, Is this what Cyberknife is? And give me a little bit more on your thoughts on how the track was playing, because it did seem, if not out now, bias certainly tilted towards speed on Saturday. Yeah, I, you know, I think the problem with Cyberknife is that they're reacting to individual races a little too much, and so they're they're. Um, I think I think that the decision to put him on the lead in the Travers was very smart because he had an inside post. It was a race that didn't exactly have a confirmed front runner, and everybody was sort of throwing their hands in the air about who was going to get the lead because there was going to be some hesitation from early voting connections about whether they wanted to commit him to the front. Well, then I think they sort of overcompensated on Saturday. And I think he was a little bit too far back. I don't think he needed to be that far back. And I don't, you know, I know that one of the cool things about Cyberknife is he is a a very athletic, very agile horse that will go inside, that will go between horses. Um, But I don't think that in a race where he's facing horses of equal or potentially uh, greater ability, like he's going to be, well served by being dragged back to make one run. Now he wasn't dragged out. He did get out of the gate. Okay. We, the people came over a tad and that might've put him a little bit behind the eight ball. But, you know, I think that the plan should have been to ride him out of the gate for a little bit of speed. And, you know, if he's sitting outside in third or fourth, I guess basically if you put him around roughly where we, the people was, he probably ends up running second. I think he would have been able to stay on pretty well. He's a good horse. He's a he's a horse that I think deserves a start in the in a race like the Dirt Mile. Um, you know, another gun runner with a, a a tremendous amount of talent. And look, it's hard to talk about Saturday and not mention Gun Runner. We're going to talk about a couple more Gun Runner progeny throughout the uh, the show because that's kind of a theme of it. But Cyberknife, uh, you know, to not to to channel my inner Dennis Green too much, but he's sort of what we thought he was, right? He didn't didn't do anything in this race to say that he's he's lesser than I thought, and he certainly didn't do anything to say that he's better than I thought. It does feel like watching the two subsequent runs and thinking back to the Haskell that it really did just everything came up roses for him that day, and he was seen to 
he was seen to a very, very good effect. And he's a, he's a very solid horse and he's probably better than the, the, a little bit better, I'd say, than the last two days. And, and maybe not quite as much the Breeders' Cup classic contender that he looked like for, for a hot second on, on Haskell Day. But there, there is, whether or not we like it, there is this race, the dirt mile. And, and I think you're right that he'll look good in there. I think a horse who might look sneaky good in there is Simplification, who ran fourth. Just looking at his pace figures and, and how he was really um, the best of the speeds signed on. I mean, Taba, Taba got that, I, I would say that, beautiful stalking trip in behind but looking at the the pace lines simplification ran a, a pretty nice race the time form algorithm was pretty kind to him upgraded his 123 raw figure to a 125 this is a horse i think is another one that you know maybe at a big price could have an impact in a race like the dirt mile am i overrating simplification at all uh, maybe a little but i don't know if he's not worthy of a start uh, i thought it was a good effort all in all and given you know the way he's run throughout the year uh, i think he's a he's certainly a likable horse and and it seems like antonio sano can train these you know grinding steady routing types and this horse has a completely dichotomous running style to a horse like gunavera but um he's a hard trier no doubt about it they did put some distance on him late but um that's understandable i think it was a, a pretty big ask for him given the scenario so I, I don't I don't blame anybody for wanting to see him him uh, get another opportunity. I mean, it's funny I, uh, as we're talking. I'm watching the replay of the race, and I mean, there's a period of time between the five sixteenths pole and the quarter pole where where Cyberknife works his way to about two lengths behind Taba, and I mean, he beats him by about eight lengths. He really really extended away from this field nicely, and you know, I think you could really see him sort of grinding everybody down in a way in the Breeders' Cup Classic that uh, that I think makes could make a few a little worried. That's interesting. So you're pretty, you're, you're, you, you see, do you see Taba being on tickets for you? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, he's got to be a huge price, even with the big speed figure, you would think just with all the attendant hype uh, with, with flight line. And then obviously we're going to see life is good this weekend. I think we're all sort of hoping, but maybe our betting on Saturday aside, just hoping he puts on a show to, to get the, the, you know, give him some company early. If it, if, it's it's kind of funny how keyed to Taba's chances of doing well or winning a race like the Breeders' Cup Classic, life is good is. Do, do you th- do you see it that way? Yeah, I really do. I think that's a he's sort of the the horse that is uh, is kind of pivotal in that sense. So yeah, I mean it's it's. I think if you're in if you're in the Taba camp, then you're kind of pulling for a really smashing life is good win and um, and a setup where. You know, we could have life is good out there, pushing the issue, setting the pace, flight line chasing him. And, you know, here come both Epicenter and Taba more in the late stages. But, you know, push comes to shove. I don't see how Taba can be on. The, if life is good, does what we're expecting. And again, this conversation is different a week from now. If he does what we're expecting in the Woodward, then we're looking at Taba as the fourth choice. And if you're talking about a, a three to five favorite, two to five favorite, I mean, fourth choice is going to put him somewhere around eight to one. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I mean, gosh, could he even be double digits? I guess it depends. It's going to be a weird market. We're not used to having to make guesses about prices, and it also come down to how many turn up against them, too, right? I mean, if it's a shortish field, yeah, you're, it, it's going to be eight to one. It, it feels like there's a world in which it could be it could be more than that. Um, but again, there's too many factors to, to, to consider. We'll, we'll pick this conversation up again. We don't have a ton of time today, so let's pivot to the other grade one at Parks, and then I know we want to talk about uh, 
a little Echo Zulu later, and, and we want to touch on the Gallon Bloom as well. But let's go to Steve Asmussen's society, uh, winning the cotillion in wire-to-wire fashion. Giroud really took control of proceedings early, and there was simply no looking back. Maybe a little bit of this was the racetrack, but this society was also just very, very good. The, the previous figure had come back strong on, um, on basically every known speed figure source. There was enough competition in here that you were still able to get seven to one if you believed in, in society, who I used as, uh, as no more than, than a backup in this spot. But uh, really, this was just a, a, a facile win. Comes back 124 on the time form U.S. scale uh, in the in the performance figure that's upgraded from a raw 122 and i think the buyer was pretty similar on this one i'll, I'll dig for that but what what did you think of uh, of society's performance and how much do you credit if at all the racetrack for for what happened in her earning a 100 buyer speed figure uh you know i i think she was up obviously it goes without saying she was very good i don't know how much i would maybe downgrade her performance based on the racetrack only because the a lot of the horses that chased her really were nowhere. So, I mean, it couldn't have been that a that a, a speed favoring profile helped her, but nobody else. And I mean, the runner up came from the runner up came from last. So, you know, that was kind of, of what I would I would probably go with go that route. Um she was very good. Look, I mean, she she put five lengths on those horses going into the far turn, you know, and I think the I think really what this effort does is it shows everybody, you know, those of us who bang the drum of, of riding speed horses aggressively and, and putting everybody on the chase is absolutely the best approach. So it was a, it was a good thing in, in that regard. You know, I think one of the things about the track profile, and I will admit, I am not an avid follower of parks. I, I don't, I don't find myself spending Mondays and Tuesdays watching parks. However, when parks notoriously has a dead rail, this was obviously not a dead rail. If it was a dead rail, then you should be lining up to bet morning matcha the next time she runs, right. which I don't think anybody will, will think that it was a dead rail. The When it's not, I think it becomes very speed favoring. And, and this was clearly a race where society took the other speed horses and kind of broke them in half and they all underperformed. You know, it was a, it was a particularly bad effort from a dare manner and green up who had been such an impressive winner of the local prep was, she chased the pace and got tired around the far turn and, and obviously underperformed. And gerrymander, who we thought, you know, might be a serious three-year-old filly coming into the mother goose or coming out of the mother goose, the mother goose was obviously an aberration because now she's run two races since then and, and fallen flat on her face. Secret Oath seems like the only three-year-old filly who shows up with any regularity and, and she runs her race every single time. And I certainly admire her for it, but, um, you know, she's obviously, she looks like a horse who's also declining a little bit as well. The speed figures might not bear that out because she did run a decent third in here, but I do think we've seen the best of Secret Oath, and Wayne's going to continue to run her pretty regularly, I would imagine, but um, she's a filly who probably could could benefit from getting a little bit of time off as well. So, you know, I think society beat the, the uh, she obviously beat everybody who was there. There were just, there were a number of horses who underperformed, the only thing about society that makes you sort of raise your eyebrow is that she has now run two big races and they're at parks in Charlestown. And, you know, and, and that's not to sound like some type of elitist who believes that the only good racing happens in, you know, the bigger jurisdictions. Um, I also don't want to hold her coaching club American Oaks against her too much because she did blow the break. And, and I think that obviously really destroyed any, any chance that she had, but I need to see society do it on a, 
you know, against a, a, a similar field at a racetrack that maybe cards a few more grade ones than the ones that she's won at the last couple of times. I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair. And you mentioned the win, another win for Gunrunner, the Gunrunner tap at cross here in effect with society as well. Secret oath, just looking at pace lines, looks like one maybe would he think about rather than continue to, to trudge forth to a race like the Distaff, would you think about maybe cutting her back for a Philly and Mare sprint try? Um, you know, I don't think it's the worst idea. I do think that Secret Oath is is perfectly capable of being a grade one router, turf route or a dirt router as a four-year-old. Uh, I, I just think she needs a little time off. I, I think she's, and I know, you know, that I'm sounds. that's going to happen. <laughs> time, time off for her might be three weeks. Right. It is not <laughs> happening um, in, in, in with that trainer whatsoever, which, you know, I mean, I don't mean to to scoff at him or no, we love trainers who run their horses. It's not. Yeah, it's- right. I just you know, it, it feels like for her, you know, she might and I'm good. They're going to run in the distaff. I'm sure she's going to be probably 15 or 20 to one. And, and I'd, I'd be very surprised if she hits the board. But then maybe she'll get a little time off after that and be geared up for a four year old campaign. Yeah, you know, Oaklawn this this winter seems like a place she might be able to thrive. Adair Manor, this was one where the it's a softer factor, but sometimes it it there's signal in it. The the tepidity in the betting, I thought, ultimately proved telltale. I mean, she was just she was my pick in the race going in. I got a little bit nervous seeing that she wasn't really bad at all, and then ends up drifting late and then just running no kind of race. No no real idea what, what that what that was about, but, you know, back to the drawing board for her, I imagine. Um, any others in here that you uh, wanted to make a comment on before we, we pivot and maybe talk a little Echo Zulu? No, not anybody that we didn't touch on already. I think we touched on the, the principles, and obviously there were, there were a lot more no-shows than strong performances to highlight. And uh, we'll see if how they how they come out of there because it was you know last year's cotillion I think had some of the best three year old fillies that we had not named Malathot and this year's didn't so I mean it's it, it's what's becoming clearer and clearer as time goes by is that these three year old fillies are nest and then everybody else as far as the routers go yeah that sounds about right and it's going to be interesting they're really in the international markets they're just going crazy for nest for the distaff we'll see i'm not sure if it's as simple as what those markets make it look like obviously loads of time to talk to that about that in the run-up to the breeders cup but speaking of three-year-old fillies we did see at churchill downs on saturday the dogwood grade three going seven furlongs echo zulu making her return to the races and she made it a winning one in just about wire to wire fashion at two to five scoring a 117 on the time form scale that's both in the in the performance rating and the raw speed figure rating. And I think the buyer was pretty similar, more, more of like a mid-90s type of an effort for Echo Zulu, who uh, you would think would have to get faster than this in all likelihood, a 94 on the buyer speed figure scale to, to contend in a race like, like the Philly and Mare Sprint. But she's just such a cool horse who I like a lot, and it's always fun to see a horse who is such a good two-year-old still winning races at three. How good is Echo Zulu? What do you think of her chances going forward? You know, she's obviously – she's very good. She's obviously a horse who's had issues along the way, and her three-year-old debut was extremely delayed and obviously didn't make it until the Fairgrounds Oaks and came back and ran this really underrated race in, in the Kentucky Oaks and 
finished a really game fourth. The way that race unfolded, you know, I think there's a pretty strong argument that she was best on the day. And obviously, um, I mean, she would have won that. Uh, she would have won the, the acorn by a pole, given that the Brad Coxworth who won is a total mediocrity and, and she won for fun. So, but she was scratched that day and, and now resurfaces. Um, ran against a, 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 you know, not a, not a great horse by any means, but Tarabi is is certainly a solid competitor, and I thought Echo Zulu made her look pretty ordinary. She get away with pretty soft tractions. Um, it was not the you know the most compelling victory in terms of speed figures, but I like the way she ran all in all, and uh, I think she's probably set up well for some bigger races next year. I wouldn't be shocked if we hear that they are punting on the Breeders' Cup. And, and, you know, looking at something a little bit more down the line, I would be very tempted if she was my horse to look at, um, I think there's a, there's a three-year-old Philly race on, uh, on Breeders' Cup weekend and, or look at something like the, the Chaluki at, at Churchill and then potentially the La Brea and get her set up for the problem with this division is that if they do that, then she's off basically until the middle of next winter you know, or towards the end of the winter, because there's no older female sprint race in the, in the Midwest, in the Midwest or South. So they'd be sort of stuck, not really running her until basically like the Madison. And, and so I don't know, I don't know if they want that much time off. I guess what I'm saying without getting to it, but I need to just get to it is I don't think she's Breeders' Cup ready right now. I don't think, you know, I don't think they want Goodnight Olive and Kamari and, um, you know, and some of the other female sprinters that we've seen over the last couple of months. I don't, I don't think she really wants them yet. Well, Brea seems like a very interesting target for her, you know, restricted grade one. I mean, you could plot a course back from there. Maybe you do you like that idea? Yeah, I, I think so. And I mean, Asmussen has not been the most willing to, to send out to California on multiple occasions, but he has on, on uh, enough frequently enough to, to try it here. Yeah, it just seems like it, it's a tailor-made spot, I think, in terms of distance and, you know, obviously the timing you do it, you have to you figure something out between now and then. But, yeah, she's really cool. She could develop into a horse that would look like a Breeders' Cup horse, but it does feel like she might be a little bit out of her depth there. I do want to talk about one more race before we let you go today. I know we're a little bit pressed for time, but I did want to talk about the grade two gallant bloom at Belmont at the Big A. Interesting, popping on to the chart here. Uh, the first thing I noticed is that Timeform US had this day on Sunday at Belmont at uh, at the Big A coded as favoring uh, as being favorable to closers, which I thought was interesting. Um, Kamari sat up off the blue coated pace set by Lady Rocket and ends up winning rather cozily length and a quarter in the end. The figure did not come back anything to write home about a 114 on the buyer on the time form, excuse me, figure scale. And I'll dig on the, on the other, on the buyer figure for that real quick. But uh, do you think this is a race that might have some uh, Raiders cup implications? What did you think about it? You know, I, I do. I, I think Kamari has been very, very good in her last two starts. And, and I know that there's probably going to be, people that that hear me say this and get a little frustrated. Um, I think that actually the important, and, and look, I'm never going to, I'm never going to discount speed figures. I think speed figures are important to use. I think they're important to understand. Kamari got a one Oh six buyer. Um, yeah. So that's an amazing disagreement between. Well, the pace was very slow, right? I mean, the, the pace, 
the pace was glacial and, and Lady Rocket was really dictating terms to everybody else. The reason why you're supposed to upgrade Kamari coming out of this is that Kamari basically chased her the whole way and and Joel Rosario never really dropped his hands on her and she just she just reeled Lady Rocket in with great ease and ended up winning the race by over a length. They were almost 10 lengths clear of everybody else. On paper, they were supposed to be 10 lengths clear of everybody else. They were the best two by a mile. But what we've seen from Kamari in her last two is that despite having really no pace to run at, she's been able to reel in horses like Frank's Rocket and Lady Rocket that are um, are you know pretty solid animals. I mean, these are not Rated bad horses performers. at all. Legit yeah, exactly. Performers. Yeah, I mean, and have both have had plenty of opportunities at a, at a grade one level. So, you know, I think that that is admirable on Kamari's part, and I think it makes her a major player. And look, I think one of the other things that makes you upgrade Kamari is that she has always been particularly good at Keeneland. So, you know, I mean, I, I will, I certainly uh, am going to like horses like Obligatory in the in the Philly and Mare Sprint. Um, we'll see how much speed there ends up being. I would imagine Goodnight Olive is going there after winning the Ballerina. Um, CC will probably show up again, even though she ran a little bit of a lackluster race in the Ballerina. I don't know how much you want to hold Saratoga races against everybody. So, yeah, Kamari looks like a horse to me that'll be a, a major player. I tend to agree, and that's really interesting seeing that difference in speed figures, and I think you make a good suggestion as to why that might be the case. This is a Philly Kamari who I wasn't sure how much was left in the tank. There were a couple of efforts in the spring that made you wonder, but now after these two efforts, yeah, I mean, you look at the international markets, there's way too much between Goodnight Olive, who's a heavy favorite. Uh, last time I looked, and and Kamari, I'm sure that'll be updated based on on this number. But it'll be interesting to see who these foreign bookmakers, which speed figures they're looking at, because which one you look at could make a huge difference in the prices. And if you're looking at the buyer speed figures, I mean Kamari, I think she's probably supposed to be the favorite, don't you think? Pretty close to it, if not right. I mean, I don't think I'm I'm missing anybody in thinking about it. But yeah, there's there's got to be there's got to be plenty of support for her above anything else. What did you think of Lady Rocket? Where, where do you think uh, our friends at 10 Strike Racing go from here? I think Lady Rocket is going to the Night of Stars at Phasic Tipton. Um, <laughs> I don't, I think, I think, yeah, I think that's it. I think that, that's, that's kind of the word that I've gotten, um, which, you know, I, I don't blame them. And, you know, right, look, the, the market right now for, for horses that you can sell is just out of this world. So I don't, I don't blame them whatsoever. Um, I think that there's probably there's got to be some temptation to run her back in the in the Breeders' Cup, especially and and what I mean, look, what I would do if I was calling the shots is I would start to let it get closer to the actual race and and see if because I'm looking right now at Odds Checker to see if there's a horse that I'm missing and there's just not. I mean, just one time is listed as the second choice, but I don't think she's run very much. Um, so I yeah I don't I don't know I I don't I don't know why they might not consider it I guess Frank's Rocket could run and I suppose Chi Town Lady who won the test ugh, I mean that was you want to talk about I mean Kamari is like a, a much better version of, of Chi Town Lady so uh, you'll have Bell's the one you'll have uh, Sconson I'm sure Caramel Swirl who was second in the ballerina will be in there but you know as I rattle off these names nobody exactly strikes fear into your heart right no good and, night and you're right I mean, 
Yeah. Odds checker has Nest at 1.757 to 4. Nest, it, Nest can't beat Malathot. It's, it's, I told you, it's a little crazy. I mean, I love That's Nest, nuts. but they're like forgetting about how good the, some of these, some of these four-year-old fillies are, I think, when they're putting that number up there. Yeah, I like Nest. I think, I think the problem is that people are not understanding that while Nest got better as the summer went on, none of her rivals did, right? Nest really thrived in Saratoga and Secret Oath didn't. And everybody else wasn't wasn't good enough. So, you know, it's the classic, you look great when you're a varsity player and you're playing against the JV kids, and then you start playing against the varsity, and it's like, oh, wait, they're a lot better than the, the ones I've been playing with. So, you know, and I mean, Malathot was outworking Nest before their respective races in late August, and Malathot has never really been regarded as a, as a you know, particularly strong morning mover. So, you know, I just think that's, yeah, people people are forgetting about that a little bit. Flight line is listed at eight to eleven. So yeah, I guess that's about right. What what is that? Seven point seven two to one? Yep. Yep, right around there. And that that makes sense. I mean that's I, I think you'll see shorter on the day, but of course there is still a question. You know, I mean, you got to get into the gate. We've seen we've seen high profile late scratches before, so that's that's no the doubt. reason why he's not shorter. If you're if you're the world's biggest believer, I wouldn't advise against taking that. I don't know personally. I kind of want to see what happens on on Saturday with with life is good and what kind of figure he puts up. Who does it look like is going to turn up against him? Is is it is it, it going to be somewhat of an exhibition? You and me in a horse suit. <laughs> Um, <laughs> with all due respect to the mighty law prince, law professor, and uh, uh, well, actually, you know what I'm seeing, and I we're going on and on with this, but I'm seeing a headline that says "Gallant Bloom Victory puts Kamari in conversation for Breeders' Cup Sprint." Um, oh, that dear. seems ambitious. That seems a little too ambitious. Wesley thinks that she's better at six than seven. Right, I guess that would be the reason why you would do that. But I don't know. Doesn't I, I feel like isn't the Madison seven and hasn't she won that race before? The Madison is yeah yeah yeah. That's so, just very dumb. That's there's so if, if Sunday's race was seven, what would have happened? She would have gotten tired. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like, these guys say this stuff. <laughs> I think it's so ridiculous. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, back to what you were asking. So life is good is expected to have just three or four opponents. And, you know, look, I don't want to be too much of a jerk, but I did think it was funny that there was a headline saying he was going to face a few. It's like, guys, we've been watching grade one races in New York all year with four and five horse fields. So it's not really nothing new, but I'm glad we have a headline. So our collector is going to go to the to the uh, Lucas Classic. It looks like first captain is going to go to the Fayette. Um so the horses that are going to run against him are Law Professor, and it appears as if one of them is going to be Keep Me in Mind, Thomas Shelby, and Informative. Okay, well. He will be, David Aragona has foreshadowed already installing him at one to nine. Yes, that seems like the right price. It'll be a time trial, though. It'll still, it still has relevance um, as, as a time trial, I would say. And, and it's kind of funny because I really do think it'll be market, potentially market affecting, certainly affecting the way that I look at the race, whether he gets, you know, a 110 or a, or a 103 or what, what is his hot? Do you know offhand what, what is, what, what's the highest figure that Life is Good has run? 
Highest figure life is good has run, I want to say, is the Pegasus, which was around a 110 or 112. I can verify that really quickly. Um, his, Easy enough, his, and then I'll let you go. But yeah, I feel like his ability-wise, that certainly seems like his established uh, his established. Yeah, so level. Counting, counting back from the Whitney was a 107, the Nehrud was a 112, the Pegasus was a 110, Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile 109. Okay. So, I, I, I mean, mean look, you know, if he runs, if, if, if Irad just sort of cuddles him through the final quarter mile and he runs a 106 or, you know, somewhere in that range, I mean, he's going to come in with a, a, in a normal year, he would come in with pretty damn good credentials. And, and yeah. we all need to remember, especially all of the amateur historians out there that think that all of the horses that ran, you know, 30, 40 years ago were so much better than all the horses we have now, even if they were, let's, let's recognize that life is good as a, is a, a very good horse by modern standards and comes in with a very very strong set of credentials it's really true i mean overshadowed by uh by the, the, the crazy flight line figures and visual impressions but this is a horse who i would think if you look at the fastest mile times he's run if nothing else you're gonna learn a lot i mean flight line if this assuming everything goes to plan on saturday and it sure seems like it is after hearing that He's got Flightline's going to have to run faster earlier than he has, and we'll see what effect that has on him. I mean, no reason to believe it's going to make him not perform, but there's a lot of reason as a horse racing fan to be super pumped about this year's Breeders' Cup Classic, and we're going to be covering it all in the run-up. Nick being a big part of that coverage. A reminder, if you sign up for our Plus service in early October, you can get all of our Keeneland coverage and Breeders' Cup all for just the – the, the 15 boxers. If you've never joined, this is a great time to join. If you want to be a wise guy, I'd wait maybe till the eve of Keeneland and, and, and hit it then. Though, then again, we're going to have a lot of extra stuff for Santa Anita too, and that kicks on this weekend. We're going to have a special webinar too, Thursday night, previewing the Santa Anita meet, talking about the Saturday card. But I got to let Nick go because I promised him he was going to be out of here 10 minutes ago. So you go, enjoy yourself, Nick. We'll have you back on later in the week, and, and we'll be talking soon. Sounds great, my friend. Talk soon. Today's show also brought to you by our friends at Breeders' Cup. A busy weekend lies ahead for Breeders' Cup winning your in action from all across the world. The Belmont at the Big A hosts the Miss Grillo and the Champagne on October 1st. There's way action for Juvenile Phillies, Turf, and the Juvenile, respectively. Then on Sunday, October 2nd, it's the Pilgrim and the Frisette winning your in action for the Juvenile Turf and the Juvenile Phillies, respectively. Additionally, Churchill Downs' Ack Ack Stakes on October 1st is a way up for the big-ass fans. Dirt modeling, you know how much I like to say that. Finally, opening weekend at Santa Anita brings us the Awesome Again Stakes on Saturday, winning your in for the Longines Classic, as well as the Speakeasy Stakes on Sunday, winning your in for the Juvenile Turf Sprint. This is all in addition to a slew of stakes at Longchamp in France, including the prestigious Qatar Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe, winning your inaction for the Longines Turf. All winners will receive entry fees paid by the Breeders' Cup, a $10,000 award to the nominator, a $10,000 travel allowance for horses stabled outside of Kentucky. You can find coverage across NBC, Fox Sports 2, and FanDuel TV. That's going to do it for today's show. I want to thank Dale Romans and Nick Tamaro for taking time to come and join us today. We'll thank our founding partners, 10 Strike Racing. Always love to root for the purple and black around here. And Clay Sanders, if he ever wanted, he could be a fine podcast producer if he decides he wants to take on yet another job in his already busy life. 
Who else? The Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. Always love helping out the TRF around here. Their mission to help horses, to help humans. Learn more about the TRF. Learn about this party we're doing, Breeders' Cup Friday. We'd love to have you come join us. trfinc.org slash players is the place to go to do just that. Most of all, though, want to thank all of you, the listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do. Keep your comments and questions coming. You can find me on Twitter at Looms Boldly or hit me up through the contact page over at InTheMoneyPodcast.com. That goes right to my email. So terrific way to reach out with any questions, comments, etc. This show's been a production of In The Money Media. Our business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. On the video production side, we always like to shout out producer Craig, producer AJ for hitting all the right buttons. James Millar, he's been helping us as our sales associate behind the scenes. And then on the In The Money Plus side, want to shout out our friends Tyler Wisman and Eric DeCoster for all the fine work that they do. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatal. May you win all your photos. Hawthorne Invitational is back, sponsored by our friends at Daily Racing Forum. This is a handicapping contest that's going to be live streaming on the Hawthorne YouTube channel starting Saturday at 2.30. 50 players, top contest players from around the country, including NHC champs like Jim Bennis, like Justin Mustari, like previous Hawthorne Invitational winner Frank Mustari. They're all going to be in the house. They're going to be talking about six mandatory races. They're going to be playing, culminating in the Hawthorne Derby. You're going to want to watch this. It's going to be a lot of fun. Check it out on the Hawthorne YouTube channel. We're also going to have special coverage of the day and the Hawthorne Derby a little bit later this week, and we're going to be talking a bunch more about this contest. But just know, as you're playing the horses on Saturday, have that Hawthorne YouTube channel on in the background. Watch this live streaming event. It should be a whole lot of fun. And if you want to get involved yourself, you can do that. Not in this contest this Saturday, but Hawthorne have other opportunities, including their Thanksgiving contest, a free online contest. To learn more about everything going on over there, go to InTheMoneyPodcast.com slash H-A-W. That's InTheMoneyPodcast.com slash Hawthorne.